0: Hmm. Recorded live. Hello and welcome and thank you once again for joining me. Today, of course, is September the 12th of 2016. A beautiful day here in western Kentucky. Um, we were having a, a temperature probably in about 81. Very nice morning in the mid to after 50s. It was pretty decent, you know, a a sign of fall to come, for sure. Much needed. Ah, Heavenly Father, we just give thanks for this day, and I just thank you, dear Lord, for all that you continue to do. And now, Lord, I ask and pray that you just bless the ears that hear this program, dear Lord. Enlighten those hearts that know you. And, Lord, just plant seeds for those that do not. Now, Heavenly Father, we are in a time, in a period of time where you're you're knocking at doors, dear Lord, and I just pray that those answer, say yes unto you. And Lord, I just pray for our nation. I just pray for the political situation of this nation. I just pray for each and every one of us, dear Heavenly Father, because we definitely do need you in our lives we need you in this nation dear lord there is just so much just so much going on that uh, we just need you we need you we need you in our lives dear lord each and every one of us And i just ask and pray heavenly father that you just continue to work with me lord that i may be a shining light a kind word or voice or even Uh, help to those that need to come and be with you, to bring you into their lives. I just give you all the praise in your son Jesus' name, and I just ask that you just bless this program, and I thank you for this opportunity and this medium to share your words. In your son Jesus' name I do pray. Amen. Okay, folks, so we start a new chapter here. It's called, Shall I Not Drink the cup. It's betrayed, abandoned, and condemned. At the heart of it today, Jesus agonizes in the garden of Gethsemane, but is willing to accept the suffering as part of God's plan. He is then betrayed and abandoned, given to the custody of his people, corrupt priest and ruling council. And the memory verse, Put your sword away, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? that's John, chapter 18, verse 10 and 11. The Garden of Abba. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to the disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. To the point of death, he said to them, Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And that's Mark chapter 14, verse 32 and 36. Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives on the range of a low-lying mountains overlooking Jerusalem. The mount has an elevation of about 2600 feet. The name Gethsemane is Hebrew and Aramaic, and Aramaic for oil press, referring to the pressing of olives to obtain their oil. Only John eighteen one identifies the place of arrest as a garden. This garden was an orchard or kitchen garden, not an aesthetic garden. Most likely it was an olive garden or an olive grove. Jerusalem had no public parks or gardens per se, but this garden served <laughs> as a kind of a park. The key term for today, betrayed. As he had foretold, Jesus was betrayed. The Greek word means literally handed over by one of his own disciples, abandoned by the others, betrayed by the religious leaders of his own people, handed over to a pagan ruler for execution. Impatiently enduring these sorrows, he put into action his own teaching about love for one's enemies. Jesus began to be deeply distressed in Gethsemane. It might be fair to assume that up until this moment he hoped that God's plan would alter that God would find some other path for him besides suffering and death. Matthew chapter 26:39 adds the detail that Jesus fell with his face to the ground when he prayed. Only prayers of the deepest agony would be prayed in this posture for Jews, normally prayed while standing. This passage has the only occurrence in the New Testament of Angon, an Anoni, A-G-O-N-I-A, which can mean fear, anguish, struggle, conflict, or contest. Anoni, anagi is, of course, the root of our word agony and is also the reason that painting of this famous scene are often tilted or titled The Agony in Gethsemane. Contrary to the common belief, Abba does not really mean Daddy. Though Abba does, it was not at all common for Jews to refer him to God as Abba. Only Mark has Jesus referred to God as Abba. Jesus uses the term of endearment, shows that even in his hour of distress and inner turmoil, he turned. The word Abba is Aramaic, a familiar term for one's earthly father. Among the Jews it was used not only for but also for rabbis, but almost never used for God. Probably whatever the gospels have Jesus Uh, whatever the gospel have Jesus using the Greek patter he had actually spoken the Americ word Abba, since Americ was his native tongue. The use of the word Abba in two of Paul's letters shows that the first Christians remembered it was the way Jesus in his native tongue addressed God. So likewise, Christians can address God with this term denoting childlike trust and intimacy. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And that's Romans. Chapter eight, verse fifteen, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son and to our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, and that's Galatians chapter four, verse six. To address to address God as Abba, completely trusting and submitting to His guidance, is to follow Jesus' command to become like little children, for Jesus accepting. What was about to happen was based on this belief in God as Abba and loving Father, not some cold-hearted divine dictator in the sky. God, Abba, could be begged and pleaded with, but ultimately Abba's will would reign supreme. Jesus knew Abba will always only to do what was right. Jesus says to God, everything is possible for you, including an alternation in the divine. Jesus' mind surely would have considered the familiar Genesis story of the near sacrifice of Isaac by his father. Abraham, where at the last moment an angel stayed Abraham's hand, telling him that he had passed the supreme test and shown himself as one who obeyed God fully. Jesus believes that everything is possible for his father. Perhaps even at this point in time, there is some other way for the story to end. Some other path for the Christ to follow that will achieve the same goal. But if not, Jesus still trusts and obeys. Jesus would have struggled in prayer with God about how his death fit into the inauguration of God's kingdom. The objection that he had already knew all the details of how his death fit into the victory will be convincing to those whose theology can afford to ignore that many of the New Testament indications to the contrary. Any notion that Jesus was simply going through the notion And not really feeling any emotion about what it was to occur is nonsense. To live in a fully predictable world is not to be human. If Jesus was fully human, his prayers in Gethsemane had to include a real hope that his death was not inevitable. He is in agony. And like any human being, he asks for the support of his closest friend, the disciples, Peter, Peter. James and John. Take this cup from me. The cup Jesus refers to as the cup of God's wrath poured out on the guilty. The cup of wrath. Imagine occurs several times in the Old Testament. You will find with drunkenness and sorrow the cup of ruin and desolation. And that's in Ezekiel twenty-three thirty-three. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And that's Jeremiah 25, chapter 15. The wrath of God is not, of course, directed against Jesus, but against mankind's sins. The innocent Jesus is going to drink the cup that should be drunk by the guilty. How did anyone know what Jesus prayed? People in ancient times almost always prayed as well as read aloud, so Jesus' words were likely overheard by three disciples nearby. If they were completely asleep when Jesus prayed, it is possible he told the story after his resurrection. Luke chapter 22, verse 44, adds a memorable detail. Being in anguish, he prayed most earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Sweating blood really is possible, a process called hematotitoris, in which capillaries under the skin burst into the sweat glands, with the blood carried to the surface by the sweat. But the passage in Luke may simply mean that Jesus was sweating so profusely that it was if he were bleeding. In his anguish, he was not just slightly damp with sweat, but soaked with it. Luke chapter 22, 43 says that an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen Jesus, which is the basis of the many paintings of Jesus in Gethsemane with an angel nearby. The Gethsemane account is both inspiring and disturbing to read. Knowing what is about to happen, we cannot help but feel anger at the world where a good and innocent man is agonizing because he knows he's about to be arrested and killed. Yet, one of the beauties of the story is that it shows Jesus is fully human. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And that's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Though Jesus was divine, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found In appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. He was human as Adam was, as we all are, yet he submitted fully to God and obeyed him. And just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also though the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. And that's Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For Greeks and Romans to whom the gospel was preached, the Gethsemane episode seemed ridiculous compared to the tranquil death of the philosopher Socrates. As the pagans saw it, Jesus did not face death with anything like the aplomb and fearful fearlessness that was widely expected of a spiritual hero. The Jews, too, had the Maccabee martyrs as examples of going bravely to death. The agony Jesus exhibited in the garden was not just a matter of his own unwillingness to suffer, but also a sign of his knowledge of entering great struggle with evil. The great trial that preceded the coming of the kingdom He was agonizing not just for himself, but also for all his future followers who would find themselves harassed and even put to death. He was agonizing over a world that had been created pure and good by his father, but which had gone dreadfully wrong. As the gospel was read, both Jews and pagans pointed to Gethsemane episode as evidence that Jesus was not truly divine. Christians said it proved he was truly human and that the divinity was enhanced not negated by enduring the worst of what human beings endure. The gods of the pagans could not be hurt even when they took a temporary disguise in human form. The god of the Christians had not just appeared in human form but also lived as a real man one who could drip with sweat as he agonized and prayed, take this cup of suffering away from me. Frail flesh. He came out and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, Is at hand, and that's Mark chapter fourteen, verse thirty-seven, forty-two. In this time of agony, Jesus wanted to be with God, and he wanted to be with his disciples. The disciples did not have to do or say anything; that merely had to be with him present at the Transfiguration, and immediately afterward, Peter, James, and John were the first to hear Jesus predict his future suffering. And this may have had something to do with their being chosen to keep watch for him in Gethsemane. Yet Jesus separating himself from the disciples in Gethsemane shows how he is separated from human support. Their sleep shows they are unprepared for the great time of testing that is upon them. Gethsemane means, like another, confrontation with Satan, who has entered into Judas and seems to be at work in the others who will flee in the hour of trial. When Jesus returns to find the disciples sleeping, he has done exactly what he warned of in the parable of Mark Chapter 13, 34 37, and the disciples are not being watchful for the return of the Lord. Peter is here referred to as Simon once again, since his present behavior is showing that he's not the rock that seems so dependable. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Old Testament thought, flesh connotates human weakness. But sinfulness, per se. Though human weakness, Satan works to distract people from God's plan. When Jesus tells the disciples that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he is not just addressing them, but also referring to his own agony about what is in store. Willing here means eager, ready, fully engaged. The early Christians reflecting on the sleepiness of the disciples in Gethsemane called to mind Psalms sixty nine twenty. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there is none, for comforters, but I found none. History's most notorious kiss. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him and was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Matthew chapter 26, 47, 50 In Gethsemane, the kiss, a sign of respect and love, becomes a sign of betrayal. We can only assume that Judas chose it as a signal for that very reason. He intended not only to signal to the crowd who Jesus was, but also to wound Jesus even more. The verb translated kiss here is K-A-T-A-P-H-I-L-E-O, meaning something done reverently as with a warm embrace. We can only imagine perhaps a bear hug that would not only catch Jesus off guard but also in effect keep him still so the mob could move easily close in on him Judas called Jesus rabbi at the time of the kiss a normal greeting which suggests Judas was hoping to catch Jesus unawares Luke chapter 22 uh, verse 48 as this detail Jesus asked him Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus calls Judas friend, the word is not philos, P-H-I-L-O-S, the usual word for friend, but heteros, H-E-T-A-R-O-S, meaning close friend, companion, comrade. Judas was more than just a casual friend, And so his betrayal is all the greater. Some commentaries believe it was totally improper for the disciple to greet his master first, since this implied equality. So Judas' kiss was a sign not only of betrayal, but also of rebellion against the man who was his master. In effect, it was an insult but the greater insult was the mere fact that a pupil, friend, and traveling companion had betrayed the man to whom he owed loyalty. Six times the Gospel identified Judas as one of the twelve, emphasizing that the betrayer was one of the men closer to Jesus. Matthew, Jewish readers familiar with the Old Testament, would have recalled the treachery of Joab one of King David's military chieftains, Joab, said to Anazza, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Anazah by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And Emmaus was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. And Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground without being stabbed again. Emmaus died, and that's Second Samuel, verse 20, chapter 9, or chapter 20, verse 9 and 10. The kiss of Judas, so treacherous and a tent, gave way among the early Christians to the greeting known as the holy kiss, or the kiss of love, mentioned in four of Paul's epistle, and also in one Peter, bloodshed and healing. One of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant at the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? That's Matthew chapter 26, verse 51 through 53. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And that's our memory verse chapter. John uh, chapter 18, verse 10 and 11. One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this, and touched the man's ear and healed him. Luke, chapter 22, verse 50 and 51. The sword mentioned at the Gethsemane story includes the ones carried by those arresting Jesus, were not the long swords we usually think of, but probably short-bladed ones, more like daggers than swords. Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to one of the disciples wielding a sword. In John's version, he is identified as the impulsive Peter, whose intentions and loyal outpace, outpace uh, his brain. Peter is again standing in the way of the divine plan. Jesus must be arrested, suffer, and die. And in the heat of the moment, the loyal but impetuous Peter did not have turned the other cheek in mind. The wounded servant of the high priest might have been the high priest Sagon or deputy, meaning he was a priest himself. And being mutilated by his sword meant he could no longer serve as priest. Following his own mandate not to resist evil nor to return violence for violence, Jesus puts up no restraint, nor he allow his disciples to use the sword. Luke, a physician by profession, chose to include this memorable detail. At the point of his arrest and betrayal, Jesus heals a man whose ear had been cut. Jesus is going beyond, turn the other cheek. Not only does he not resist the violent men, but also he even heals one of them. The detail that Jesus healed the man's ear is important, since otherwise the violence would have been brought up at Jesus' trial as evidence that Jesus' followers were violent, dangerous men. Put your sword back in your place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus' words apply to the present situation where any further display of violence would probably have led to the assault, arrest, or pursuit of the disciples. But his words also apply generally to violence, which only generates more violence. Well, we're going to end here, and uh, we will pick up on Wednesday with... uh, shall I not uh, drink uh, this cup? And hopefully, uh, I'll have my voice uh, back uh, together. I don't know what it just seems like. Ah, I guess it's just the cool weather, uh, uh, the change of weather. Well, anyway, Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share your words And Lord, I just pray for each and every ear that hears. And Father, I just thank you for this medium. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to share words of, of knowledge, of interest, of faith, of inspiring moments in history and in life. And Lord, you are very real to me. And I just pray that you will be real to others, as you are to me. And I just thank you, and I just praise you in your Son, Jesus' name. I thank thee. Amen. All right, well, have a blessed afternoon, and uh, I will see you, uh, or I, I will talk to you on Wednesday. In the meantime, have a glorious afternoon.